Good evening and welcome to the first installment of Olivia Reads Books. I'm Olivia and in the next half an hour I'll do what it says on the tin, read books, or rather read extracts from books and poetry. I've picked some of my own favourites and some pieces that have been recommended to me by friends. I hope that you'll hear something tonight that sparks your curiosity or gives you a little bit of comfort and that maybe you'll be encouraged to read some more of what you hear. I've picked two of my favourite poems to begin with, Man on the Moon by Stephen Edgar and Stargazer by Louis McNeese. I'm sure you can spot the astrological theme already, but what I love about these poems is the exploration of our relation to the cosmos. It's easy to feel overwhelmed, especially at the moment, by our huge world and maybe too by all of our responsibilities in it. Christopher Bullock said, all the way back in 1716, "'Tis impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes." I'd add something to that and say that the paradox of the constancy of change is unavoidable. Although it's nice to feel in control sometimes, at times when that's impossible, it's comforting to me to remember how small we are compared to the scale of the universe and all the beauty of its true simplicities. Man on the Moon by Stephen Edgar Hardly a feature in the evening sky as yet, near the horizon the cold glow of rose and mauve, which, as you look on high, deepens to Giotto's dream of indigo. Hardly a star as yet. And then that frail sliver of moon, like a thin peel of soap gouged by a nail or the paring of a nail, slender enough repository of hope. There was no lack of hope when thirty-five full years ago they sent up the Apollo, Two-thirds of all the years I've been alive. They let us out of school, so we could follow the broadcast of that memorable scene, crouching in Mr Langshaw's tiny flat, the whole class huddled around the TV screen. There's not much chance, then, of forgetting that. And for the first time ever, I think now, as though it were a memory, that you were in the world then, and alive, and how down town's long labyrinthine avenue Eventually you'd bring yourself to me, with no excessive haste and none too soon, as memorable in my history as that small step for man onto the moon. How pitiful and inveterate the way we view the paths by which our lives descended, from the far past down to the present day, and fancy those contingencies intended, a secret destiny planned in advance where what is done is as it must be done for us alone, when really it's all chance, and the special one might have been anyone. The paths that I imagined to have come together and for good have simply crossed and carried on. And that delirium we find is cold and sober now and lost. The crescent moon, to quote myself, lies back, a radio telescope propped to receive the signals of the circling zodiac. I send my thoughts up, wishing to believe that they might strike the moon and be transferred to where you are, and find or join your own. Don't smile. I know the notion is absurd. And everything I think, I think alone. Stargazer by Louis McNeese. 42 years ago, 
To me, if to no one else the number is of some interest, it was a brilliant starry night and the westward strain was empty and had no corridors, so darting from side to side I could catch the unwanted sight of these almost intolerably bright holes punched in the sky, which excited me partly because of their Latin names and partly because I had read in the textbooks how very far off they were. It seemed their light had left them, some at least, long years before I was. And this remembering, now I mark that what light was leaving some of them, at least then, 42 years ago, will never arrive in time for me to catch it, which light, when it does get here, may find that there is not anyone left alive to run from side to side in a late night train, admiring it and adding knots in vain. Stephen Edgar, the author of the first poem, Man on the Moon, is an Australian poet who was born in 1951. I discovered this poem myself when I was reading Clive James's Poetry Notebook, which is a collection of essays on contemporary poetry. James describes this poem as almost perfect in that a poem can never be perfect. I would definitely recommend his book, Clive James, who's an Australian himself, his enthusiasm for poetry really is infectious and the book is great for dipping in and out of to discover, to discover something new. Louis McNeese, on the other hand, was born in Belfast, complete other side of the world. He lived most of his life in England and was a contemporary of John Betjeman when he was at school and W.H. Auden and Anthony Blunt when he was at university. Anthony Blunt isn't a poet. He is a Soviet spy and a member of the Cambridge Five, which I hadn't known, uh, but that, that's a whole interesting history around, um, certainly around Louis McNeese's social circle whenever he was a student. This poem, Stargazer, is from his collection called The Burning Perch, which was published only a few days after his funeral. Louis McNeese died quite suddenly. He was quite young, so, I don't think he would have known that he was coming to the end of his life when he wrote this poem, but it is certainly an interesting perspective to take when you're thinking about when you think when you're thinking about our relationship with with the universe in itself. Man on the Moon was written in two thousand and four. Therefore, Stephen Edgar was eighteen years old at the time that he's talking about at the time of the moon landing. McNeese is speaking about a time 42 years ago whenever he was 14 years old. I thought I thought that was quite interesting that they had both chosen to take this transition period. I don't think in at, at that time I don't think teenager was really a concept that was as 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 widely considered as it is now, but it's this bridge into adulthood that we start to think about our place in the world and the meaning of our lives and maybe start to look at the world around us a bit more closely. There's definitely an image of childlike wonder and the idea of hope in both of these poems is, is very striking. Edgar says that there was no lack of hope 35 years ago and even McNeese's description of his movements on the train, running to, from side to side, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think an adult would, certainly not in view of other adults, would, would feel so comfortable running about on a train. But it's, it's this wonder that perhaps now in adulthood is dulled by the monotony of life. 
these poets are thinking about the magic in observing the, the wonders around us before a time when these wonders become routine. The idea of impermanence and the feeling that nothing really is written in the stars is magical to McNeese and disappointing to Edgar. Edgar looks at the stars and realises that they don't care about him or the person that he loves and thought would love him forever. McNeese looks at the stars and realises how tiny he is compared to them and counts himself as unbelievably lucky to be here at all. It can be quite depressing to think of a time when there is not anyone left alive, but McNeese turns this round into a wonder that he is alive and he grabs the moment while he can. As I said, it's quite poignant that, that this poem was published just after his death, but I do think it's comforting to think that beauty will continue to thrive after we are all gone and nothing else is recognisable. I'm going to read an extract now from Invisible Cities, which is a novel by the Italian writer Italo Calvino and translated by William Weaver. This novel is framed as a series of imaginary conversations between Marco Polo, the explorer, and Kublai Khan, an elderly emperor, about fictitious cities with which Marco Polo travels through. This isn't a book I've read myself, it's a recommendation from a friend. But I love this extract because of its musings about the unpredictability of life and the interconnectedness of our human experience. Marco Polo imagined answering, or Kublai Khan imagined his answer, that the more one was lost in unfamiliar quarters of distant cities, the more one understood the other cities he had crossed to arrive there and he retraced the stages of his journeys, and he came to know the port from which he had set sail, and the familiar places of his youth, and the surroundings of home, and a little square of Venice where he gambled as a child. At this point, Kublai Khan interrupted him, or imagined interrupting him, or Marco Polo imagined himself interrupted with a question such as, you advance always with your head turned back? Or, is what you see always behind you? Or rather, does your journey take place only in the past? All this so that Marco Polo could explain or imagine explaining or be imagined explaining or succeed finally in explaining to himself that what he sought was always something lying ahead. And even if it was, it was a matter of the past, it was a past that changed gradually as he advanced on his journey because the traveller's past changes according to the route he has followed, not the immediate past, that is, to which each day that goes by adds a day, but the more remote past. Arriving at each new city, the traveller finds again a past of his that he did not know he had, the foreignness of what you no longer are or no longer possess lies in wait for you in foreign, unpossessed places. Marco enters a city. He sees someone in a square living a life or an instant that could be his. He could now be in that man's place if he had stopped in time long ago, or if long ago at a crossroads, instead of taking one road, he had taken the opposite one. And after long wandering, he had come to be in the place of that man in that square. 
by now from that real or hypothetical past of his, he is excluded. He cannot stop. He must go on to another city where another of his pasts awaits him or something perhaps that had been a possible future of his and is now someone else's present. Futures not achieved are only branches of the past, dead branches. Journeys to relive your past was the can's question at this point, a question which could also have been formulated, journeys to recover your future? And Marco's answer was, elsewhere is a negative mirror. The traveller recognises the little that is his, discovering the much he has not had and will never have. One of the reasons why this extract struck me is that often when I'm trying to work out how I feel about certain things in my head, I imagine that I'm having a conversation with someone else in which they ask exactly the right questions to facilitate my most eloquent answers. I'm sure this is a very common phenomenon, but I've never seen it represented in a novel. This extract is so thoughtfully written, and I would definitely like to read the whole book. It makes me think of chaos theory and the butterfly effect in their most basic senses. A snap decision which seems tiny and inconsequential can change everything later for you or for someone else. I read a really exciting young adult fiction book which was based on this theory, to the extreme really, called Mortal Chaos by Matt Dickinson. It follows about six different narratives which finally end up changing each other radically by unintended tiny actions. A lot of people spend years of their lives dwelling on what could have been, but it is impossible to say whether something that could have been would have been any better. Stephen Edgar believed that nothing was written in the stars. Marco Polo certainly advocates simply packing up and moving on. One of the most famous lines from Invisible Cities is when Kublai Khan asks Marco Polo why he says so little about his hometown of Venice. Polo's answer is, every time I describe a city, I am saying something about Venice. It says something about how nothing we experience can be experienced objectively, whether it's a book or a poem, a place, a person we meet. Everything we see, we subconsciously compare to what we already know, and that influences and even sometimes impairs our enjoyment of new things. That in turn says something about the power, the value of new discovery, of travel, of putting yourself out of your comfort zone. It says that it will change everything you see after that time. My next extract is a German poem by Doris Grünbein, which is called Biologischer Walzer, or Biological Waltz. I'm going to read it to you firstly in German, before I read the English translation. For me, the most unique aspect of poetry that I love is the sound and the feeling of the words in your mouth. I do believe that poetry should be heard rather than read. For this reason, poetry in translation is particularly interesting as the translator has to convey the basic message of the poem, but also create an oral picture which matches the original as closely as possible. Everyone experiences the relationship between sound and meaning in different ways, but when I'm reading anything at all, I find it helpful to read it aloud in order to fully understand the tone and the emotion behind it. 
even if you don't understand the German words, hearing the poem aloud might give you an idea of the feeling of the poem as the poet intended it. Biologischer Walzer von Doris Grünbein Zwischen Kapstadt und Grönland liegt dieser Wald aus Begierden, Begierden, die niemand kennt. Wenn es stimmt, dass wir schwierige Tiere sind, sind wir schwierige Tiere, weil nichts mehr stimmt. Steter Tropfen im Mund war das Wort der Beginn des Verzichts, einer langen Flucht in die Zeit. Nichts erklärt, wie ein trockener Gaumenvokaler, wie ein Leck in der Kehle Konsonanten erbricht. Offen bleibt, was ein Ohr in Laborglas sucht, eine fleischliche Brosche, gelb in Formaldehyd. Wann es oben schwimmt, wann es untergeht, wie in toten Nerven das Gleichgewicht klingt. Fraglich auch, ob die tausend Rädchen im Pelz des gelehrigen Affen den Heißhunger stillen. Was es heißt, wenn sich Trauer im Hirnstrom zeigt, jeden flüchtigen Blicht ein Phantomschmerz lenkt. Zwischen Kapstadt und Grönland liegt dieser Wald. Ironie, die den Körper ins Dächicht schicht. Wenn es stimmt, dass wir schwierige Tiere sind, sind wir schwierige Tiere, weil nichts mehr stimmt. Biological Waltz by Doris Grunbein Between Cape Town and Greenland, there is this forest of desires, desires nobody knows. If it is true that we're difficult creatures, we're difficult creatures because nothing's still true. Steady drops in the mouth, the word was the onset of renunciation, a long escape into time. Nothing explains how it palates that's dry can vomit vials, a leak in the trachea, consonants. What's it doing in the specimen glass, this yellow ear, a fleshy brooch afloat in formaldehyde? When it floats to the top, or when it sinks, balance starts ringing like nerves that have died. Can the thousand little wires in its fur sate the ravenous ape who's so quick to learn? What if sorrows exposed in cerebral currents? A phantom pain steers every fleeting gaze? Between Cape Town and Greenland, there is this forest, irony, sending the body into the woods. If it is true that we are difficult creatures, we're difficult creatures because nothing's still true. Doris Glunbein is another contemporary poet. He was born in 1962 in former East Germany, but now lives and works in Berlin. He writes a lot about the experience of living in a divided Germany and the changes, emotional and other, that reunification brought. One of his poems, uh, it's called Vita Brevis, begins with a line which translates to, in a rotten nutshell, I grew up amid the barrenness and confusion. I think the repeated line, if it's true that we're difficult creatures, we're difficult creatures because nothing's still true, represents this confusion. We'll never know why people do things the way they do. We'll never know why things happen as they do. There's a whole huge world between Cape Town and Greenland, huge forests of people and places. And this huge world is made of tiny organisms, all of which we can never hope to fully understand in our lifetimes. 
My favorite line in this poem is, what if sorrow is exposed in cerebral currents? It's quite difficult to get your mouth around that. It's possible that the translator, Michael Hoffman, deliberately made it so, as the German is a bit difficult too. Was es heißt, wenn sich Trauer im, Hir Trauer im Hirnstrom zeigt, where Hirnstrom corresponds to cerebral currents. The signs are complicated, but the concept is, it is pretty obvious to everyone, even if we don't consider it too often. It's quite amazing how something we hear or see or read can trigger such an unstoppable physical response, such as laughter or tears. We generally tend to think, in adulthood anyway, that we're pretty in control of ourselves. But in reality, we are often ruled by instinct. It's also a good reminder of how close science and the arts and logic and emotion are interconnected, even if school systems might say otherwise. My final poem this evening is a short one, but it makes me smile every time I read it. The Orange by Wendy Cope. Wendy Cope is a contemporary English poet who writes a lot of poetry for children as well as adults. My friend who sent this to me described it as a great slice of life poem. I'm not sure whether that was also meant to be a fruit pun, but she is right. Once you've finished pondering our relationship with the stars, our lack of control of our futures, I will never truly understand the world around us, maybe how we'll never truly understand the German language either, it's nice to read a simple poem that reminds us that some days are joyful for the simple things. The Orange by Wendy Cope. At lunchtime I bought a huge orange. The size of it made us all laugh. I peeled it and shared it with Robert and Dave. They got quarters and I had a half. And that orange, it made me so happy, as ordinary things often do just lately. The shopping, a walk in the park. This is peace and contentment. It's new. The rest of the day was quite easy. I did all the jobs on my list and enjoyed them and had some time over. I love you. I'm glad I exist. Thank you so much for listening to the show this evening. I hope you've heard something that will make you think or make you smile. Special thanks to Chris, Antonia and Catherine who have contributed pieces that I've included in the show this week. If you have something that you would really like to share, a piece of writing of yours or of someone else's, please do send it my way on opc24 at cam.ac.uk. That's opc24 at cam.ac.uk. UK. In the meantime, stay home, stay safe and have a lovely week of reading.